Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. This is the last week of our throwback sermon series. Has anybody enjoyed this whole throwback sermon series thing? It's been fun. That's not me trying to solicit uh, applause for me, just the, the series. Um, but I think it's been a really cool way to, to see some depth in areas that maybe we've just brushed past in the Bible over time. And especially if you grow up in the church, you can get so accustomed to hearing the same stories with the same takeaway points, many of which originate in the Sunday school years. And, and you forget that there is so much that God wants to speak to us through the scripture. And it's my prayer that as we've went through these, as of today, this will be the 11th um, sermon in this series, that God will have deepened your understanding of his love for you, of his goodness, his kindness, and his plan for the world. That is our heart in this. Um, Today, we're going to talk the good old faithful story of Jesus flipping over some tables in the temple. Anybody familiar familiar with that story? Maybe a few of us. Um, Why I wanted to make sure we touched on this um, is because the reality of the Sunday school take of this story of Jesus flipping over tables in the temple is often distilled down to this. Don't make money in the house of the Lord. You guys have heard that takeaway, right? It's wrong to make money in the house of the Lord. It's like, okay. And spirituality should not be monetized. It's like, okay, I, I can get on board with that. But if this story is misunderstood... Um, I spoke to some folks of younger generations over the last couple of weeks, and when I mentioned that I was going to be preaching on Jesus flipping the tables in the temple, it, one of the responses was like, oh, Jesus' little rage fit? It's like, well, no. there's a lot of theological implications of that terminology that uh, obviously we need to have a little discussion about. Um, no, absolutely not. Or the, the takeaway for some people is, well, Jesus had angry outbursts, so can I. Like, this is just my Jesus turning over over tables moment, and it's righteous and justified because I'm a disciple of Jesus, and he did. And it's like, now you're kind of missing the point, fam. That's that's not what's going on here. Um, But the reality that those are the ideas that are flying around, and those are the things that when I mention, we're going to preach through this story, and like, oh, yeah, that thing that justifies me being a jerk to people sometimes. It's like, no, that's, that's not it at all. And so... I'm excited that the, the truth and the reality of what the Lord wants us to take from this couldn't be further from, like, from that, and I pray that it will impact us all in a meaningful way today. So can we please talk about what this story actually means, amen, what this actually means. Now, this is in all of the Gospels, but we're going to be reading it out of Mark today. Mark is my favorite, so you get to hear out of that one more often. Um, I love it because he's speaking to Gentiles to people that aren't of the church, that didn't grow up in the Jewish tradition. And when you hear what this is about, it will make sense to you as to why I chose to read it out of here. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. And if you're confused of why I'm including the fig tree in this passage, I will explain it to you. It's all just one one thought here, one thing that we need to be taught. So Mark chapter 11, verse 12. It says, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Because somebody say hungry. Hungry. Not the main point, but still interesting that it includes that. 
seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, meaning that it was full of leaves. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Talk about being hangry. And his disciples heard him say it. So he cursed this fig tree and the disciples heard it. And it's important enough that we know that, that it's included in here. So hold on to that. Now on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables on the money of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, which indicates there's something culturally that he has done here that we don't understand that is of significance. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this is about so much more than a monetization of the spiritual. It's about so much more than trying to justify our fits or outbursts because that you showed emotion. God, I pray you would reveal to us the fullness of what you have for us in the scripture and would it impact our lives. Would it help us become closer to you, closer to your mission, better worshipers of you, and would it bring glory to you? So we thank you and we praise you for what you're about to do in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, the title of this sermon is House of Prayer. House of Prayer. Not um, fits of rage, not um, scattered tables, not how dare you. But just simply house of prayer. Now, when you first read through this, <clears throat> it can seem like a bunch of scattered information about a couple days of Jesus' life as he comes into Jerusalem. It's like, wow, that seems like a lot of random things put into this story. But a thorough understanding of this text tells of a new temple, a new community in Christ who decentralizes that relig the religious mechanisms of worship that were present in the temple. And it actually calls for them to be scattered about the world, extending God's kingdom through each representative, each representative or citizen of it. It calls for the people to be the new temples scattered about the earth. And for the things that people had to come there to do to be close to God, Jesus is starting now. He's inaugurating this new system where each person, each follower, each believer of Jesus gets to be that wherever he leads them. 
So this text is actually, even though it seems scattered at first, it's actually not scattered, but God's presence is meant to be scattered. That's what we're going to work through as we do this into every neighborhood, into every nation, to all people groups, to all tribes and languages. God's temple, his presence is meant to be everywhere. It is not for one people, place, ethnicity, or culture. It is for all people of all nations. Praise God for that. So, First, let's take a moment to understand the text so we can understand the implications of what God's telling us here on our lives and in our community through the scripture. So this incident that we're reading happens immediately after last week's sermon. This happens on their way to Jerusalem. So last week, if you weren't here, we talked about what is often coined as Jesus's triumphal entry, where he enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey or colt, depending on your translation. And then that day ends with him going to the temple. He looks around and then he leaves. And then this is the very next day where we pick up here. And he stayed in Bethany and he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And we know from the previous text that he'd done some sort of reconnaissance the night before. It says he came and he observed the temple, but it was too late So he left. So that, but it was too late, indicates there's some things that needed to be dealt with. And, you know, in true Arnold Schwarzenegger fashion, he'll be back, right? Like, it's, it, he comes back the next day. Maybe that's too old. Gosh, I keep using stuff from my childhood, and some of you youngsters are just, thank you. I'm doing, shout out to the partially gray hair on the right side over there. So they're on their way back. This isn't just a random, like, Jesus happens upon the temple. He had come into there the night before, and he is on a mission. He has some thoughts. He has some things to deal with. And on the way there, he seemingly randomly comes across this fig tree, and he noticed that it had leaves, but it bared no fruit. Why is this significant to throw in in the midst of this? It's because Jesus is kind of having a an experienced parable happening here. This is like a parable in real life. He's like, that this fig tree, I'm going to curse you because you bear no fruit. This fig tree resembles Israel, where the temple is that he is entering into. It represents the people of Israel and what they have done with religion. Even though this tree is fully leafed out, it looks robust. It looks healthy. Many would expect to find fruit In it, yet, its lack of fruit symbolizes a hypocrisy of Israel's leaders. Like, we want to present to look all healthy and great, but no fruit will be found here. You have made the people of Israel ripe for judgment from God by just trying to present a religious nature, yet not having a relationship with God and a desire to be close to and worship him. One scholar put it this way, a people which honored God with their lips, but whose heart was all the time far from him, was like a tree with an abundance of leaves, but no fruit. So he's pointing this out because the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem that are supposed to be on team Jesus, because this is the Messiah that's been talked about since the prophets back in the Old Testament. These people should know who he is and what he has come to do. But they just don't get it. They are presenting full leaves and no fruit. It's all about looks and not about content. There is nothing good growing on or coming from their religious expression at this current time. And so Jesus curses this fig tree and we read that the disciples heard it. And then it moves on. And then it moves on. Then they enter Jerusalem and Mark describes the following events 
simply and with little introduction. I love reading through Mark because he's just like no nonsense. Here's what happened, then this, then this, then this. It's like, it's like the ESPN highlight version of what happened. Like for those of us that we don't want to pay attention to all the details and all the emotion of everything and it just gets to it, it's like that is the book of Mark. And he does that. It's just like very simply, little introduction. Jesus enters the temple courts, we read, and he begins driving out, which is the same strong word associated with exorcisms. This isn't driving out like, hey, shoo, shoo, like, come on, move on. This is the language used for exercising or casting out demons from people is what he's doing in the temple. Think about that for a second. The verbiage of casting out devils is used to send these people out of the temple. These people who are both buying and selling. Man, I can't tell you how many times I read this before I realized that it was both those were buying and selling. Because when you read it and you're like, oh, these money changers, these people setting up tables. Well, we know the people selling are the ones setting up tables, right? So we just breeze over and we think like, oh, those darn sellers of stuff, they're taking advantage of it. He casts out those who are buying and selling. Hold on to that. And then he starts flipping over tables. I won't show you what that looks like. You can imagine it yourselves. Of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, for the convenience of these pilgrims that were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, the animal sellers and the money changers had to set up business in the temple's outer area, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, they had set up this area because these animals were being sold for sacrifice. So someone could come buy an animal that they knew was ritually clean. It was pure. All of this without mark. They could buy it and they could go have their sacrifice so they could be right with God, get into the temple for Passover. Can you imagine how hard it would be to be a pilgrim on foot coming from hundreds or tens of miles away and keeping an animal like pure for sacrifice? That would be too challenging. So what they did is they set up in the temple courts a place for people to actually buy these animals so that they could go through the ritualistic religious systems that were at place and engage in this Passover festivities, these sacrifices. It was far easier for a pilgrim to just purchase this sacrifice there and have it be kosher than to try to maintain it being kosher across the land. So Mark mentions only doves, or some translations say pigeons here, um, which were sacrifice, they were sacrificial or, um, animals just for the poor. They were offerings for the poor. So this is important because it's not like, oh, the big cows or the beautiful lambs or sheep, he was casting them out. What we can see here is that in the court of the Gentiles, the part of the temple that was for those who had just recently come to God, who were seeking God, who weren't culturally Jewish and allowed into the inner parts of the temple, they had set up this store of sorts. And they were selling animals taking advantage of folks likely that were poor and there to buy kind of the lesser of sacrifices, the doves or the pigeons. And why this is highlighted is what's happening is the, the whole house of prayer for the nations, the whole desire of God to be close to all people, every people group, every culture, every ethnicity was being inhibited by this cultural desire to grow their own pocketbooks, to have some commerce based off of this religious festival, and in turn it was keeping these people from even being able to approach God. Imagine if we charged some astronomical price at the door and said, you can come in if you can afford that. 
You can come in here if you can afford the cover charge. And we're keeping out those that are poor, marginalized, those that may have some socioeconomic or ethnic reasons that they can't come into this space. We're keeping people from encountering the living God by our own systems and standards. That's, that's a little bit of what's happening here. And he highlights that they were using the sacrifices that were for the more poor folks because they were likely price gouging them. Like you don't, they're, they're trying to capitalize on supply and demand. And so as much as someone could have brought a dove from where they came from, and it would have been way cheaper, then it would have had to have been inspected by the rabbis and the, the Pharisees and all those people to make sure it was clean enough for sacrifice. So what we're seeing here that we can't miss with these details is the cultural Jews of the area were keeping out those that previously hadn't known God, the Gentiles, those other than the culturally dominant group in this time. And God is not happy with that. Jesus is not <coughs> happy with that. He does not like that those who are seeking him, those who are poor, those who are marginalized, those who maybe have recently decided to like come into his temple to pray and to seek him, that there are unnecessary barriers for entry for those folks. And that is a significant piece of why all of these details are being unpacked for us. Jesus then quotes Isaiah 56, 7 to them, pointing to the purpose that the temple is, that it will be a place for even foreigners to seek the Lord, or that it should be a house of prayer for all nations. This isn't a place for the culturally dominant group to come and have their powwow and their little like religious expression. This is a place that is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And when he says all nations, he's not just talking about citizenship. He's talking about ethnicity, culture, people groups, those who might normally not be allowed even in Jerusalem because of different political things that are happening. This is for all nations. In this court of Gentiles where they had set up this whole money-changing area was the one place that these folks were actually allowed to worship, and they turned it into a public market, eliminating the ability of foreigners to actually come worship God in this time of Passover where people had come so far to be able to engage in this. So this development would have been especially important for Mark's readers. Remember, I told you that his book was written mainly to Gentiles. So as they're reading this, they would have been like, hey, that's not cool, man. Like, if I want to come engage with this God you're telling me about, why would they set this up in the one place I can come into? It would have been very intriguing, and it would have been likely triggering for the Gentile readers of the book of Mark. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, which were kind of the dominant power structure at this time, had already decided that Jesus now needed to be out of the way. Like immediately when he challenges their systems, their way of religious expression, they say he needs to be dealt with. And they were already trying to plan a way to kill him. And the teachers of the law, the scribes, had made the same decision. They were ready to find a way to get rid of this guy who was causing a ruckus in their most holy place. And his actions in the temple directly challenged those who were in religious power. This wasn't just some subtle thing. He came in and this was challenging the religious power structure of this time. So they decide to go into action against him. But we read that it can't be openly. 
They can't have some marketing campaign with billboards and everything else, you know, trying to say, hey, this guy, he doesn't know what he's doing. They have to be more covert and do it behind the scenes because people were absolutely captivated with Jesus' teaching. They're seeing the miracles. They're seeing healings. They're seeing lives transformed. And people were so captivated by his teaching that they're like, man, his, his charismatic preaching and the actions, the way that like, he's doing miracles and all these things, we need to keep this on the down low because there might be an uprising. Because Jesus is starting to gain favor from the general population. And then at the end of this, we read that Jesus and his disciples then withdraw from Jerusalem for the night again, and we could presume that they returned to Bethany. And the next morning, returning to Jerusalem from Bethany, again they passed this fig tree, this quote-unquote random fig tree, and it was totally destroyed. It was totally destroyed. And Peter recalled what Jesus had said, and he called his attention to this withered tree. And Jesus doesn't explicitly interpret the event, yet the meaning seems clear. That Jesus predicted judgment on the temple will come to pass as surely as he did predict that this fig tree would be withered and it would bear no fruit. And he uses this incident of the fig tree to teach critical lessons on faith and prayer. So, first we're seeing this theme of, hey, everybody, everyone from everywhere should have a place to encounter God. Everyone should be able to come into the house of the Lord and pray to him and seek him and worship him. That was a big no-no as, as far as what folks were doing there that Jesus was frustrated about. But then we see he goes into this lesson on faith and prayer. The source of power for, for, for performing the miracle is God, so he must be the object of our faith. And like previous pronouncements of Jesus, he begins this with, Truly I tell you. How many of us know that if Jesus sat down and, you, and he was about to teach you something, he says, truly I tell you. There's just something about to come, right? You know, if, if like somebody says, truly I tell you, like, hey, listen up. I'm like, I'm, be serious now. I mean what I'm about to say. Whenever you read Jesus saying, truly I tell you, that's like a lock it in focus. He's about to drop something very important on us. And then he explains this <clears throat> correlation of faith and prayer, the importance of faith and prayer, and that prayer and forgiveness have a correlation as well. Now, many people can get behind the, yeah, faith, yeah, prayer, but don't have any unforgiveness in your heart when you pray. Ah, come on, Jesus. Like, really? <laughs> Why would you have to take it there, right? Like, we like faith and we like prayer, but forgiveness, there is something all too comfortable about holding on to bitterness with people who've wronged us. Many of our life groups are going through a series called The Bait of Satan right now where we talk about offense and unforgiveness, and so I find it quite timely. But he highlights this here in that correlation. To be effective, prayer must be offered in faith, faith in the all-powerful God, not faith in anything that you do, but what he is able to do, a miracle-working God. And it must be offered in a spirit or posture of forgiveness. It must be offered in a spirit of forgiveness. So faith and the willingness to forgive are two conditions of effective prayer. Faith and the willingness to forgive. So we need to look a little deeper at two things here to really draw out what God has in this for us. And again, there could be a lot said about this passage. So I want to encourage you, like always, go read this for yourself. 
Get a study Bible if you don't have one. See what kinds of things it's going to tell you. Like a Sunday is just simply a moment where we come together and we receive a collective word from God for, as his people as we gather so we can go be representatives of him wherever we go. It is not meant to be your only input and your only Bible time in the week. So please use this as a launching pad. Go home, read this, see what else God might have from you in it. But today we're going to talk about the temple and we're going to talk about prayer. So the first is this temple and fig tree correlation. This cursing of the fig tree in the temple episode, which some call a cleansing, a cleansing of the temple and, and this issue with the fig tree. But it'd be better understood as a denunciation of the current religious systems, followed by the discovery of the withered fig tree. And they're closely related, and they represent another one of Mark's sandwiching or bracketing literary devices. So if you're into literature and literary structure, when you read through the Bible, it's full of these things that help us actually understand what the author is correlating. And when it says, hey, fig tree, temple, fig tree, that's what you could call, like in layman's terms, a sandwiching effect. But it's, it's in literary terms, it's bracketing, where this causation and effect of the fig tree is drawing a correlation to what's happening at the temple. That the, um, the cleansing of both of them, the denunciation of a religious system, it's connected to this illustration or this experiential parable of the fig tree. And therefore, we know as Jesus is teaching about prayer at the very end, that is also correlated to this whole thought. It's all one thing. And so, well, Pastor Chris, you're talking about tables turning over. Why did you bring in the fig tree? Because it's all part of one thought, and it's being taught as a, as a similar thing. It's a correlated thing. And this bit about prayer, if we just say, oh, he turned over the table, tables and cast out the money changers and all this stuff, then it just becomes don't mix money and spirituality, right? Like that can be the takeaway if you minimize it. Instead of, no, this is a house of prayer for all nations. All people should be able to approach God. And here's the quantifiers of prayer, of healthy prayer that Jesus wants to teach people in lieu of this event that happened. So we need to understand that this is correlated, and it does draw in what Jesus teaches about prayer after they see the withered fig tree. So what we need to understand about Jesus' interaction in the temple is this. He does not seek to purify current temple worship, but to, he symbolically acts or attacks the very function of the temple and heralds its destruction. Now, you could think he's coming in, he's flipping tables, he's like, we need to purify this. This isn't right. I want to make this current system how it's supposed to be. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's coming in and saying, this current system is defunct. It is, its days are numbered. This way of worshiping and coming to God is going to be done. This temple, type of temple worship is actually like going to be destroyed. And each person that puts their faith in me, believes in me, follows me, will be the new temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple of the mission, worship, and bringing glory to God. That is what he's saying. It's not, oh, let's fix what is broken. It's, I'm denouncing this way, and I'm bringing on a new, better way. A new and better way. The temple's glory days are coming to an end, so to speak. Now, in private, Jesus does predict to his disciples that the temple will be destroyed. But the Gentiles are not, because the Gentiles aren't allowed to even enter into this place of power and of presence of God. They can't even come into the temple proper. 
Now, would Jesus have envisioned the nations gathered to Mount Zion and then forced to spend their time on the outer courts? Do you think Jesus envisioned all these nations coming to Jerusalem, to this fantastic place, and then those who aren't part of the cool club have to stay on the outer court? Like, I do not believe that that is what God envisioned when he envisioned temple worship or a house of prayer. What if he condoned segregation? Separate and unequal in God's temple? Absolutely not. And that's why, again, if we just minimize this to being a financial thing in the temple courts, we miss that as the network of churches, the family churches we're a part of is titled Every Nation. This is for every people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, not just the dominant culture of the time. What kind of beacon is it that would draw the nations to Jerusalem only to partition them off by their tribes and keep them segregated and separate? That's just not God's heart for the people. So it has to go. It has to go. Now this reference of being a den to the robbers has little to do actually with the trade in the temple. And instead it denounces the false security that the sacrificial system breeds. So, again, if we don't look into what's happening behind the scenes here, we miss the fact that the temple is like a safe house for these robbers. These people are out price gouging people. They're out living their lives however they want to live. And then they can just bring in a sacrifice worthy animal and they can find hiding, basically. It's like a hideout. It's a functional cleansing place for those who choose to day in and day out do things that are separate from God. And then they come into this place and check off their religious checklist. And they think that they can just go on in the same favor and the same relational depth or whatever you would have it with God. He is saying this is, gives you a false sense of security due to the sacrificial system that's in place. And you are out robbing people and this is your house. This is your den. This is where you come back to to be safe and to hide out. So these robbers are not swindlers but rather they're bandits. They're kind of like rogue folks that just come back to the hideout. They don't do the robbing in their den. Their den is the place where they retreat after having committed their crimes. So as they're engaged in the religious system, they're out doing wrong, doing things that don't bring glory to God, and they come back there for refuge. So calling the temple a robber's den is therefore not a cry of outrage against any dishonest business practices in the temple. It's Jesus indirectly attacking them for allowing the temple to degenerate into just a safe hiding place for people that just think they can keep coming and finding forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they're actually acting in the world, no matter how they're actually living their lives. So folks can just be out doing whatever they want, treating whoever they want, however poor they desire to, and they can come back in and have some sort of self-righteousness that they're in the temple because they're in a cultural or economic majority, and so they can come into this place. So Jesus is prophetic action here, and his words attack a false trust in the effectiveness of the temple sacrificial system. He's saying, hey, this isn't it. There's a better way. There's more to following God than what y'all are doing here. And the leaders of the people think that they can rob people and then perform these prescribed sacrifices according to prescribed patterns at the prescribed times with a type of prescribed purity in a certain sacred place. And then they'll be safe from judgment and from the reality of how God calls them to live. And that is wrong. 
Because the sacrifice of animals will not enable them to evade doom that God purposes for those guilty of lying, stealing, violence, and adultery. The sanctuary supposedly sanctified by God. This temple has become a sanctuary for bandits who think that they are protected from God's judgment because of this system. Now, we know that Jesus has eyes to see the things the way that God does. He has the purview of God, and he has seen what people are doing, and he pronounces God's judgment on that way of doing things. It's not just about the little money changers or how, what kind of profit margin they're making. He's saying, what you're doing is wrong. It's missing the point. It's eliminating a huge part of the heart of God. And something different is required of God's people. There's a heart change that's required of God's people because this system doesn't work. There is a new lifestyle required for God's people. There's a a citizenship to a new type of kingdom that's required. New rhythms, new methods, new lifestyle. Something new has to come because this is not cutting it. And Jesus, he teaches the disciples that the functions that once were thought only to be available in the temple, like prayer, forgiveness of sins, God's presence, all of those things are about to be available to every believer everywhere. He is ushering in this new temple system, and it's indicative of this new system is a new kind of people who pray. So he's breaking down all the cultural norms and stuff of the temple, and then he says, and this new system is going to be about a people who pray. Not only a people who, when they come together, where they come together should be a house of prayer, but each of these people should be a house of prayer in and of themselves. This is about a people who collectively and individually commit themselves to be a place of prayer. People regarded the temple as this place of prayer, and he wants to make sure they understand the power of prayer. He expected it to be a house of prayer for all nations, though he went on to predict its destruction. Like, he predicts its destruction, but he says, still, right now, this is what this is supposed to be. And in his explanation of the fig trees withering, Jesus envisions a future without a temple, but its demise would not bring an end to effective prayer. It would multiply it. It would scatter it. This effective prayer would no longer be confined to this one area, but it would be scattered to the ends of the earth where every person that is filled with the presence of Jesus would be. There will be a new praying community. One scholar writes it this way. He says, The massive institutionalized power of the existing religious establishment must give way to the kingdom community whose power lies solely in faith-born prayer. What is faith-born prayer? Like, what he's saying is this isn't just, I pray this because it's on a checklist. I pray this because I'm supposed to. But what kind of things do you have faith to, to pray for that you know are a part of God's heart, his desire for the world? Like, he desires for people to be in restored relationships. He desires for people's bodies and health to be restored. He desires for all these things. So will you have faith-born prayer that he's still a miracle-working God and he can still move today? Or will you just say, well, I'm going to recite this prayer because I found it in a book and I really don't like doing the whole praying out loud thing and it's way safer if I can just read off something someone else fed me. 
Now, that's okay. That's a great starting point. But faith-born prayer is something that comes from within inside of us. When we know and we are walking with God, we know his heart for this world and for his people, and we pray in step with what he's doing and what he can do. Not just, oh, I, I know this is a safe one, so I'll pray that because I don't want to be that guy that prays things and the prayers don't come to pass. Like, you, have you ever been in those seasons where you're like, I'll just, I'll pray some moderate prayers because, like, I don't know if I can deal with the letdown of maybe God not doing things the way I'm asking him to do right now. He's saying this is about faith-born prayer, not just what you see God doing, but what you know he is capable of. So what does this prayer community look like? This community needs to pray receptively. That's the first thing. Pray receptively. Prayer is not imposing our will on God, but it's opening up our lives to him. It's not just, God, I want this. Make this happen. That's not faith-born prayer. That's selfish agenda prayer. This kind of receptive prayer says, I want to open my life up to God's will. I want to be more in step with what he's doing, his heart for the world. I want to hear from him, and I want to pray in line with what he's doing. Because true prayer is not an endeavor to get God to change his will, but an endeavor to release his will in our lives. Did you get that? Like prayer isn't a, God, please change your mind. Please change your mind. Please, pretty, 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 please. God, if you do this, I know it's really hard for you, and I will never do this again. Like it's not bartering with him. It's not bartering. It's saying, God, will you release your will in my life and those around me? Father, can I be so in step and in tune with you that your heart and your desire for myself and the world would come out in my prayer life? In my prayer life. And Jesus provides an example of this receptive praying in Gethsemane when he's about to be sacrificed. And he boldly entreats God, please, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. But then he concludes with, not what I will, but what you will. God, if there's any other way, you could take this cup from me and I'd be all right with that. But this isn't about me, it's about you. And I give myself to your desires to your will, to your plan. So this community needs to pray receptively. This community also needs to pray confidently. <clears throat> this text does not invite one to attempt magical miracles on their own. This isn't some like, you know, Simon the Sorcerer moment where you just go out and out of your own power and your own might and your own faith in your faith, you're trying to see things happening. We are not to go out and test our faith by saying, be moved to every mountain and house and bridge and huge structure that's out there just to try to flex and see like, oh, do I have enough faith? Can I command something to move and it moves? Like, that's not the point here in what's being illustrated. We have to guard against treating prayers. It's some magic wand that allows us to get or have or do whatever we want. That is not the heart of prayer. When Christians pray with confident faith that their prayers will have power, they can, like Jesus, overcome even the greatest oppression. Because with Christ, nothing is impossible. Amen? With Jesus, nothing. And I mean nothing. Not like nothing but. No, I mean nothing is impossible. Prayer is not an engine by which we overcome the unwillingness of God. 
It's not something where if we can just do it enough, it can give enough power to overcome like God's apathy towards us or the world. For goodness sake, if you're stuck in thinking God is apathetic towards the world, go back, read the Gospels where he gave his one and only son for you and for me. That is not an act of apathy. That is an act of significant generosity. We do not have an apathetic God that we just need to get him going on his morning coffee so he can accomplish our prayers to him. That is not the case. That is not what is going on. On. Jesus taught that God is ever ready to grant us what is good for us. The problem is all our prayers don't align with what is good for us, but what we want. All too often, we think we have it figured out, and from our limited purview, we know what would be best. And God, if you just get on the crisp plan, we could cut some corners here and actually get things moving. And we could see some productivity increase in this whole prayer game, right? Like, no. He is willing to grant what is good for us and good for the world. We don't need to beg God in prayer. We don't need to beg God in prayer. Quick rabbit trail. About 10 years ago, I remember finding myself in my prayer closet in my prayer time using the word just a lot, where I was like, God, would you just this? God, would you just that? God, would you just this? And somebody who's a uh, older male in my life that I asked to speak into my life said, do you really wish God would just do that? I'm like, ooh. No, I, I want him to do a lot more than that, and that's not what I mean. He's like, no, but that's what you're saying. God, would you just this? Like, would you, like, would you just barely tip the scales here is, is what my prayer life was resonating. And so I didn't take that as some, like, religious spanking. I just said, man, thank you for pointing that out. That's a blind spot. And I don't pray, God, would you just anymore. I pray bigger prayers than that. I pray things that would allow God to do amazing, huge, mighty things in my life that the way in which I even communicate my faith in how I pray is not limiting but limitless. I'm not trying to limit it. Will you just do this? But, God, will you heal everybody? God, we know you can. Every person that you want to touch right now, would you heal them? Would you cause them to stand up, have no more pain, have no more migraines, have no more broken hearts, no more suffering? Would you heal relationships? Well, which one? All of them. Why not? Nothing is impossible with him. We don't have to try to overcome his unwillingness. We need to be in step with him. Pray to the God who has limitless capabilities. Don't use your own language to put a limiter on your faith. <clears throat> See, the pagans of this time mistakenly believed that it was the squeaky wheel that would get the grease. And so they piled up different gods and prayers to every potential medium and sorcerer and inquiry to whatever magician was in town. And they're just like, if I ask everything and everybody and pray to everyone's gods and I just pester God, he will finally do it because he'll be so annoyed with me that he's just going to have to, right? Like, like the kid that won't stop asking you till you say yes. Anybody have that kid? Or is it just, I mean, no, I don't know what that's like. That is not how we need to interact with the Lord. It's not about, well, we just got to be the squeaky wheel so we can get the grease. It's not some formula to like solicit him to act in our lives. Prayer is to be founded on the goodness of God as a loving parent, who lay, and it lays hold on God's benevolence, on his generosity, on his desire to be engaged in our lives. And when Christians pray in Jesus' name, they may be confident that God's in God's response. But what they ask must be compatible with his teachings in life and death. 
So we pray out of knowing God's good and he can accomplish whatever he wants. He's a loving parent who is growing us, who is functionally discipling us. We know that he is generous. We know that he loves us and we desire to be in step with that. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are simply saying, God, do what you do. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Now, there may be some things that Christians should not ask and some things that God will not give. Um, there's plenty of things that it's like, you probably shouldn't be praying for those things. As a parent gives to a child from his or her own wisdom what the child needs, so does God. If you are thinking that money is the only thing keeping you from success, and it's not your own wisdom and stewardship that's getting in the way of success in your life, it's just that you haven't won the lottery, God's probably not going to give you the winning Powerball ticket. He probably wants to parent you to steward what he wants to bestow upon you, rather than just give you something that will cause you to crush under the weight of it. Something that your character isn't yet ready to handle. So, I'm guessing that God wants to parent you in that, teach you to maximize what you do have, you know, be faithful with the little, then he'll give you more of that whole thing. So consequently, because of this, we may receive answers we don't want. And we may find things in ourselves and through our prayers that we're not looking for. We may find an open door or a closed door that we're not expecting or that we're not desiring. Paul prayed three times, time and time again, for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And the answer came back that he would have to live with the thorn. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's 2 Corinthians 12. It was not the answer that he wanted. It wasn't the open or closed door that he was hoping for. But it was an answer that gave him life because he knew he was walking in God's will. And he knew that God was going to use it. <clears throat> so the people, this community is to pray confidently. And finally, this new community is to pray expectantly and without discouragement. Our prayer should not only focus on our own small worlds and our immediate futures, but we should fix our attention to the long term and the larger scale. So many times we're so focused on what's right in front of us that we fail to see the broader perspective of A, who God is, and B, what he's doing on a broader scale. So many times I'm talking with leaders or, or people in the church or, or friends of mine, and they're so focused on what's right here. And like, this isn't changing. This isn't changing. It's like, if you would stop focusing on that thing right in front of your face, you'd see that everything all around you is changing. That God's moving in so many areas, but you don't have eyes to see. You see, when the, the word says, give them eyes to see things, I believe that's kind of like clicking the minus button on Google Earth. You zoom out, you see a broader perspective. You're like, oh my goodness, there is so much more going on here than my selfish little crisis that I may be going through. Now, what Pastor Chris is not saying is that all crises are selfish. But what he is saying is that a fair number of them are. A fair number of them are. Because... My, like, not liking my Easter outfit is not something that is going to, like, shake heaven and earth and then it's going to ruin my faith in God, right? There's certain things that we get so bent out of shape on. It's like, really? If you would zoom out and be willing to see what other people are dealing with or what even God is doing in other people's lives, it just puts things in their proper place. 
So we pray expectantly and without discouragement because we ask God to give us his eyes to see what he's doing, to see his perspective of how he is working in the world. And do you notice that I kept saying his and he? I was talking about his perspective, what he is doing, not how I'm being affected by what I'm not getting because I want this. We take our eyes off ourselves and we ask him to give us his eyes to see And that helps us with this discouragement because we see what God's doing on a much broader scale than our little intermittent circumstances. Like how many times have people offered up the prayer, God, your kingdom come over the centuries? Like I bet that's been prayed quite a few times. I grew up in the Catholic church. I know before I knew what it meant, I prayed it a lot, okay? This prayer should never fade from the lips and the hearts of Christians. I just pray that your kingdom come, your will be done would be something that our hearts would desire, not just that we would recite because we're supposed to. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, God, would your will be done? Would your kingdom come to earth? Worship team, you can come back up here. Pray expectantly, believing that he's good, that he's going to do phenomenal amazing things. And when you're experiencing discouragement, zoom out. Ask for his eyes. Get a broader perspective. And finally, the one that is always hard to deal with is this community must pray with a forgiving spirit. We can't pray from a place of revenge or bitterness or, God, would you get them back for what they've done to me? It's like John Bevere, who teaches this bait of Satan, series, one of the points he makes is that God's judgment on the person who's done you wrong may very well be their salvation. It might be them coming into right relationship with him and having flourishing in their lives because of Jesus, not because of their doing. God's heart is that everyone would come into right relationship with him. So that's the win. That's not like, oh, they got out easy. Like, no. If we're praying, God, your kingdom come, that means everybody would come into relationship with him. And you can't honestly pray those things if you don't have a forgiving spirit. Instead of, I hope I see you pay for this, it's, I hope I see you as a brother or sister in Christ because he does something in your life and he transforms you and he changes you. Because retribution doesn't transform hearts. Like somebody getting their penalty doesn't transform hearts. And we know that because that's not the way God chose to transform the world. He gave us Jesus. He forgave us. He invites us in to relationship with him. And we simply cannot make peace with God if we bear animosity with others. God does not forgive an unforgiving spirit or an unforgiving heart. The Bible is really clear about the importance of us forgiving so we can receive his forgiving. So is this new type of community, this new temple, this new house, we are called to be a house of prayer. So as we close, my my question or call or charge, whatever word you want to put to it, for you is this, will you be a part of this praying community of followers of Jesus that commit to the message of God, the presence of God, the worship of God, and the mission of God? Will you prayerfully, with your lifestyle and with your heart, commit to his message, his presence, worshiping him and his mission? Will you be that community of people of prayer? The church, the the people of God are called to gather. 
We're called to come together. In Hebrews, read, don't, don't neglect coming together like others do. That means some people are and you shouldn't be like them. Okay, that, just to get that clear. Don't neglect gathering. We are to gather as believers with a purpose. And that purpose is that we would scatter and multiply ourselves throughout neighborhoods, cities, campuses, dorm rooms, wherever it may be. The power and presence of God is not to be contained in any given space, but we come here to celebrate what he's doing, to be built up, to be charged up, to go out into the world and be his advocates wherever he would send us. So yeah, come to church, pray, receive the word, praise and worship like you never have before. And then leave, not like, okay, I'm off until next Sunday, but this is just the beginning of the week. And wherever God leads me, wherever he's given me a word to encourage somebody, wherever he wants me to meet someone new, to share about what he's done in my life, I'm gonna be faithful to do that because I'm committed to worshiping him, to being in his presence, to being on mission, like to being in his word, to praying. I'm, I'm committed to those things. And they don't just happen when we gather. We gather so that we can scatter. We should be a house of prayer together and we should be a house of prayer when we're scattered. That is the call of this. Do not neglect letting anybody that wants to pursue God in. That was the whole cultural aspect of the temple. That was the first takeaway from today. The second one is when we come together and when we scatter, we are a house of prayer. We are committed to prayer. We are committed to the things of God. And that is the mechanism, family, through which God's gonna change the world. That's the mechanism through which over the holiday season, he wants to change your family. He wants to intervene in your family's story. He wants to like redeem relationships. He wants to work in and through you in those things. So before I pray, will you commit to being a house of prayer, to focusing on the message of God, the presence of God, the worship of him and his mission, being a house of prayer wherever he has you. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. I thank you that we don't just have to come into some sacred space to encounter you, but that you inhabit every believer through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that your spirit would fall afresh on us right now. I pray that every person in this room would have a tangible encounter with you. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the steadfastness to be a community of prayer, to be a house of prayer when we're gathered and when we're scattered. Father, I pray right now that you would level up our commitment to you, not for the sake of anything that we desire to earn rather than closeness with the Father committed to you in all these areas so that we can reflect you everywhere that you lead us. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand and close in worship.